Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. The Cardinals are 68 and 64 on pace to win 83 games. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing worse now than I was at about 530. Uh, when the Cardinals had a chance at a sweep uh, and before they were absolutely demolished by the Reds in the second game of the doubleheader. Um, a, a glaring example of how pitching to contact can go terribly wrong when you're outside of Bush Stadium. Yeah, and especially if you're in Great America Ballpark. Yes, <laughs> especially in this particular stadium where a Tommy Edmond pop-up can find the bleachers for a home run, you know. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about the, uh, you know, the viability of the Cardinals building a pitching staff like this in Bush. I would recommend against the Reds ever trying to build this kind of a pitching staff. I don't don't think it would be a great uh, great strategy for them. Oh no, they need uh, strikeouts, uh, and if you've if you've got to play players like Castellanos in the outfield, you you don't want any balls to go out there because he he gives away uh, quite a few runs um, out there with his lackluster defense. Uh, in it, it, and those are the ones that don't carry over the fence. It's uh, it it makes things even worse. So uh, as long as they have him. Uh, and kind of f- field their team in this way, they they should definitely not follow the John Mosellock get over the hill left-handers to throw slop over the plate strategy um, <laughs> in that yeah. ballpark. Yeah. So uh, so Ben, uh, what did you uh, what did you feel like you learned from this uh, this series with the Reds? Uh, so. As this wild card race, uh, such as it is, has taken shape over the last few weeks, I kind of got to thinking about the way that you and me and also fans in general have talked about this team. And then also some of the fans of other teams who are also in this race have talked about those teams like the Phillies or the Mets um, or the Reds. And uh, it reminded me of when Bud Selig first floated the idea, or at least as as early as I remember it, uh, of a second wild card. And it was it was actually ten years ago, and I wasn't sure if I had actually written a post on it uh, for Viva Albertos. And I went through like and discovered that. Uh, SB Nation doesn't really have a, a very worthwhile search function. So then I was trying to use Google, and I thought that I had maybe not actually written this article. Um, but I found the post, and uh, it was basically it uh, was a commentary through make believe where Bud Selig was a traveling snake oil salesman who came to St. Louis at this point in time, almost exactly 10 years ago when the Cardinals were even nine and a half games out of the wild card and he was selling a second wild card, which would alleviate all of our ills because our team would now be competitive and in the postseason race. And now fast forward 10 years and Bud Selig's snake oil, which is just a way for the owners to make money, 
uh, has now been foisted upon us. And I don't really think that the fan attitudes right now are any different than they were 10 years ago. And what we're watching is a bunch of teams that for uh, about 20 years were not postseason teams. They were just objectively not, you know, playoff caliber mm-hmm. teams. They were also Rams. Um, Did you say are, for 20 years? Because that's more like 120 years. Well, well, oh, yes, for 120. But I, I, I guess I'm going back to after the initial wildcard expansion right, right. where it kind of changed the way that you have to think about a team's competitiveness. And I feel like about five years after we all kind of recalibrated on what a postseason team is, yeah. they, they expanded it again and redefined it. And I, I think what we're seeing is uh, Mike Shannon is correct. The St. Louis Cardinals are not very good, mm-hmm. but they're good enough uh, to be in a competitive wild card race in September and so are the Reds, and so are the Phillies, and so are the Padres, uh, who are you know doing everything they can to collapse. And I think that we all need to adjust our expectations and kind right. of our way of looking at that team accordingly. Yeah. And um, and that's what I've learned. Like watching the Reds yeah. team that the Cardinals took two out of three from, they yeah. are not very good either. No, no. <laughs> and uh, neither are the Padres really right now. Their yeah. pitching's terrible. And it's just, there's, that doesn't really make it entertaining, but it, it, it really does feel like, you know, the old Godfather part three, right? When I think I'm out, they, pull, yeah. you know, they yeah. lose the, and split with the pirates and it's like, Oh, they can't do this. But then they go and play the reds who also are not good. And on the road, they take two out of three from the reds, but then they end the series lose getting basically 10 runs, like a little league team. That's not good. And well, it's just been a weird, uh, a weird couple weeks. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we, we don't, we don't talk about these ahead of time, but that was exactly what I felt like I learned this week too. In fact, I'm looking at my notes here and my, my note says wild card two teams are bad. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what, what I felt too watching this is, uh, you know, they're going up against this Reds team and in this whole series, I was just like, this team's not very good. I mean, their bullpen is awful. They've got some like, mashers in their lineup but it's like it's it's totally like a light switch could be on or light switch could be off type type offense um you know it's 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 not impressive and i think you're exactly right that we maybe just haven't calibrated our expectations of you know what is a playoff team to what you know when you add a second wild card team uh, it does seem like and I, I, mean, I don't know if it's like this every year but it's definitely like this this year you know and i feel like in the one wild card era you know there's usually one division that has two great teams in it and so when the second great team from that division gets in the playoffs they still feel like a playoff team and i i mean hypothetically you could have two of those and maybe there has been years like that but you're absolutely right this year i mean the the Dodgers and the Giants are kind of slugging it out for that, you know, the West. But those both seem like really high caliber teams and everybody else is just not very good. But but it also it makes me kind of cognizant of something that I've been thinking about, too, lately, which is just that we really put our team under a microscope. And I think that sometimes we're 
um, you know, we're highly critical of our team because we watch our team so often. And I'm sure this is true of other fan bases too. Um, you know, but, uh, all, you know, these other teams have pretty significant flaws as well. So, you know, as easy as it is to kind of, you know, turn the TV off and chuck the remote across the room and, you know, say these bums are done. It's like, well, unless you're, you know, rooting for one of the just juggernauts that's running away with their division, everybody's kind of muddling through. And I, I think you make a great point about uh, kind of, the way fandom has evolved as well is now you watch every game and it's, you get to know a team much more intimately than maybe listening to them on the radio uh, or reading about the games in the newspaper. Like, you know, when we were growing up and, and you kind of uh, get these annoyances with players and the manager and, And the announcers. Um, and absolutely the announcers. Um, that doesn't mean that Ricky Horton is good, actually. He's terrible. Um, but Or Jim Edmonds, for that matter. But uh, when you're doing all of this, and this was, this was something uh, that I actually used to try to do at Viva El Burdos, was kind of challenge these things where we're so Cardinals-focused, but let's take a step back and how does this compare to the rest of the league? And, and you know, one of the things that I would try to do is uh, just compare, like, player stats and the team stats to the league overall. Like, we believe these things about this player, but how does this player compare to the league overall? And, you know, in a way... Uh, it's kind of that way for the whole team this year. They are not very good, but let's take a step back and look at this wildcard race, which we're going to get even more of a chance to do. Uh, you know, they're going to be playing the Padres. Um, they're done playing the Phillies. We haven't played them for a while, but um, you know, looking at this race, we're going to get to see the Reds. We're going to get to see the Padres and, and of course continue to see the Cardinals and you uh, you know, I watching the Reds game last night and then uh, some of the Reds game, even though they were shelling the Cardinals um, here tonight, it's uh, I, I didn't wa- walk away from this series being like, man, there is no way the Cardinals will catch the Reds. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, it's you. you I, I don't know who will win the second wild card. Um, I guess I would probably give the advantage to the Reds because their record, or excuse me, their remaining schedule is easier than the Cardinals, and the Cardinals have squandered opportunities against the Pirates. But you know, if they if they were playing a, a similar schedule, I would feel no confidence whatsoever in making any sort of a prediction. Yeah, yeah. So, all righty. Well, um, we did have the other kind of. Um, breaking-ish news we had this week, or development, of course, was uh, t- uh, today as we record this is September 1st. That's the day that uh, rosters expand. And now they expand with all of two players. <laughs> and so the uh, Cardinals uh, added uh, Ali Sanchez and Brandon Dixon um, to the club as their, uh, their two call-ups. Uh, ben, uh, thoughts on that? Um, I... I'm not surprised that they made the traditional 
September call-up move, even though they have reduced opportunities for call-ups this year, uh, of promoting a third catcher. I feel like that move is the most, like, Schilt, Moselock, Cardinals, traditional September move imaginable. And I really appreciated the tried and true. Now we will be able to use our backup catcher as a pinch hitter more often yeah, uh, talking just, point, which is I just say, absurd. I hate the third catcher thing. The third catcher is the most ridiculous thing ever because how many times have you ever seen the third catcher be utilized? It never happens. There's always talk about, oh, it's an, we'll use it in an emergency situation. It's like, you know what? You lose a lot of your games, okay? If you, if, if you get to the eighth or ninth inning and, or the 11th inning and you're, you, you're out of catchers, that's just going to be a game that you lose, right? <laughs> like put Jose Rondon back there and, uh, you know, right. blow, blow it the next inning. That's all, that's problem solved. And, and you're absolutely right. The, yeah, now we can have this other guy get some at bats. It's like, have you, you know, Andrew Kisner, I think last time I looked at a 57 WRC plus. So he's not exactly pounding on the door for more, uh, plate appearances. No. And, uh, you know, he is probably not that bad and he would benefit from more playing time almost certainly, but it's kind of like backup quarterback football brain a little bit where, you know, people are like, well, if he, you know, if he got an opportunity and it's, and it's like, yeah, if he got an opportunity, he would be better. Um, but, but how much better and probably not, like league average better and you know and you're looking at so why do we necessarily need to get him more plate appearances uh, in a pitch hitting role in a pinch hitting role over someone who is a better hitter who is also in the organization and there it, it's just a talking point that if you just take it at face value and don't think about it at all you can just kind of nod your head and go about your day and that's fine but if you if you hold it up to any sort of scrutiny it makes no sense right. whatsoever right yeah i i mean i agree it's it, I, and i i think i said on previous episodes that i expected this would be one of the call-ups they would make because it's just they they always do it's it's pointless but they do it so uh so here we are uh the other move uh brandon dixon uh 36 year old i believe uh pitcher uh appeared for the cardinals in 2011 and then pitched uh, eight years in Japan, um, I believe, and then back um, back in the Cardinals system this year, um, threw in the minors for the Cardinals, where he was absolutely terrible. And uh, now he's a major league pitcher again. He pitched tonight, um, uh, pitched one inning, um, got one strikeout, and gave up a home run. So, um, Ben, what do you think? Answer to all of our prayers in the bullpen, Brandon Dixon? Uh, well, number one, let me say uh, – if it's between Daniel Ponce de Leon and a guy who went uh, across the ocean and, and then came back and is setting a new franchise record for amount of time between appearances as a pitcher uh, who just won an Olympic silver medal, I, I am very much here for the weirdness of it. If you're going to get 10 runs, you might as well do something really different. Uh, but, He's not just on the roster today. He's on the roster for the rest of the year. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, 
Can you, and well, I don't know how, I don't know how closely you looked at his stats. Uh, do you know what his strikeout percentage was in Memphis this year? I don't, I did not look that closely. 9.6%. Okay. Which is, I, 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 it's so low. I, I've not seen a strikeout rate that low. Okay. Uh, his walk rate was 7.7%, which is, you know, pretty good. Um, and, uh, you know, about on par uh, with what he was doing, like in 2010 in the minors, which is, I found kind of funny. Um, but like he is, he just, he does not have, he only threw 10 and a third innings and he's just, he's, he was not good. He was, he was horrible. His, his FIP was 8.60. Uh, his ex-FIP was 5.48. And I think I saw a quote from Schilt that they wanted the length and the experience. And I was like thinking to myself, well, he's, he has only thrown 10 and a third innings in AAA and he's been terrible. Like you aren't getting, you aren't going to get innings because he's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And the experience, I'm not here to knock it, but I, you know, he has so much experience that there's no reason to have him on the team because you know that he's not good. You know, right. like he has, he has the veteran proviness of being bad. That's yeah. why he hasn't been in the majors for 10 years. Now here's now, now, now here, I, I gotta be honest. Here's a question. I, I can, I'm trying to remember you, you can replace September call-ups, right? You, you can shuffle in other guys that are on the 40 man roster. You certainly can for injuries, and you, you could also just send continue to send these guys up and down, right? You've basically yeah. just gotten two extra roster spots. So, yeah. So, you know, as I remember that, I, you know, unclenched my fists slightly because I feel like Dixon, I think, is this is kind of a, a pat on the back for, hey, you it's you know, it's been a long journey, son. You know, here's another taste of the majors. Um I don't think he'll be there long at all. I don't know. I mean, he he got he got into his inning today. I don't know if he's going to be on the plane to Milwaukee. Um, at the at the most, I think he's keeping a seat warm for Dakota Hudson because everything I hear is that you know Dakota Hudson has already started throwing some rehabs. I've heard talk of just maybe a, you know a few appearances, and then they're going to want him back. So um, so certainly that's a spot that you know they would get. And if you have a pitcher, um, which they do, I mean, they have multiple pitchers that probably have a future on the St. Louis Cardinals, right? Um, But if you don't feel that they are ready now, you know, Libertor started tonight and um, the, you, you saw some questioning of, oh, well, will they promote him? I I don't think they ever were going to. They're going to continue him on his starter path in AAA because he has not really shown the promise you would need to come up and start in the majors. And and that's okay from a a player development perspective. But if you're trying to make the postseason, you know, you don't need another mop-up arm. Although watching Daniel Ponce de Leon pitch tonight, maybe they they need another mop up arm or two. Um, and with junior Fernandez getting injured, we'll probably see someone come up uh, for the Milwaukee series uh, or potentially injured. He left before he completed his uh, third 
batter faced tonight. Um, but you look at it and it, it did kind of feel like just another mop up guy in case they needed it. And lo and behold, it, it, it came to fruition. (laughs) They needed, (laughs) they needed a mop up guy to mop up for the mop up guy who came in for the first mop up guy that got hurt. Um, And if there's a a better indication of how the season's going, uh, I can't think of one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I I mean, you know, they were never going to call up Libertor. They were never going to call up Gorman. They don't, they're very touchy about, um, bringing guys onto the 40 man roster, starting service time, things like that. You know, those two guys are still pretty early enough in their development that I think those are, you know, kind of defensible positions. You and I had talked and others had talked, you know, Juan Yepes definitely seemed like a guy who that's a move they could have made. Um, He's a guy they have to um, put on the 40 man to protect from the rule five draft this off season. He's uh, his uh, OPS has been, uh, I believe 1200 over the last month. I mean, he is destroying triple a and, um, you know, looks like a guy who really has earned a shot to come up and hit some major league hitting. And I think, especially when you look at our, and, and now the, the, of course the problem with him is he's more or less a first base only guy or kind of a, a bad corner outfielder is my understanding. But you know, for an extra bench spot to have uh, a pinch hitter up there, I think that could have added some real value, especially because, you know, the the pinch hitting on this team is just abysmal. You've got, uh, you know, Carpenter, you know, down there who's who's not doing anything. You've got either DeYoung or Sosa who's not starting. And then you've got, you know, Jose Rondon. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, let Wainwright hit for himself with some of those options down there. So, um, you know, that's that's a move where it would feel like, hey, yeah, you're taking a shot. And like maybe you bring a guy up who's pretty hot and and he gives you some some valuable at bats. And and any move like that would have at least kind of suggested, hey, we're uh, we're serious about this second wild card. We think we have a shot. You know, would anything have moved the needle that much? Probably not. But you know, it's just, it, it, to me, it, it is just another brick in the just kind of bummer way that this team is, uh, you know, has operated for, for this season and really for a lot of the, you know, last few seasons where it's just so kind of blandly, nakedly conservative and unadventurous and, um, you know, just kind of walking through the motions and the, the priorities are always things like, um, you know, uh, the 40 man roster and, and service time. And, and, you know, you don't see as many moves where it's like, just, you know, like, Oh man, they're just going for it, you know? So, um, you know, a a small thing, I wasn't going to be a big deal no matter who they called up, but, but even in a small thing, they've managed to uh, make it a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. And you make a good point. Um, but if, Hey, if, if you need to get Kisner plate appearances, you can't bring up another right-handed bat. That even if the right-handed bat has like a 415 weighted on base average and triple a yeah yeah so well we uh we alluded a little bit to the uh, bullpen shuffle and so uh uh let's let's get into that a little bit more um in a segment that i, I think we're going to try to call bullshilt we're going to we're going to try to make bullshilt happen here so um we had some some serious bullshilt i think this week uh as as a um uh, Schilt uh, kind of officially pulled Alex Reyes from the closer role and said, hey, 
this is now uh, I'm going to play matchups now is how we're going to do this bullpen. So um, and since then, um, they have had two uh, games uh, that they were ahead uh, and, and were save opportunities. And uh, both were pitched by uh, Giovanni Gallegos. So, <laughs> Ben, what do you th- what do you think about this uh, bullpen situation? Um, you know, it was, it was predictable, uh, to an extent. Um, one of the things that we've talked about on here, um, and also you and I have, uh, exchanged a lot of text messages about over the year is early in the year, it, it drove me really nuts because it seemed like you know, and, and I say this tongue in cheek, uh, both when I tweeted and now when I'm saying it uh, on the podcast, when the, the St. Louis media establishment and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of joking a little bit about it, but it felt like for the first couple months of the season, they were just going to whitewash Alex Reyes's walk rate. And we aren't going to talk about it because he is saving. He has a great save percentage and a low ERA. And, you know, I am glad that Alex Reyes had a high save percentage and a low ERA for the first part of this season. But if you're the Cardinals and you're the grown-up who's charged with making decisions, that's Mike Schilt, you need to recognize how precarious that success was. And you need to be ready to make a move. And... You know, I, I remember a Rick Hummel article, and it was just, it was the perfect chef's kiss Rick Hummel article. You know, the game has passed him by. He writes terrible articles. And this one was so perfect because it was, it was meant, I think, to praise Alex Reyes. And it was about save percentage. And it was that he was the most efficient Cardinals closer since Ryan Franklin. <laughs> and when I read the headline... You know, like if if it was, I I had a gym from the office moment where I looked up at the camera, like, are you kidding me? Um, (laughs) Are are we really talking about this in these terms? But I got to thinking about Franklin and how, uh, you know, he imploded as closer. Um, And it's completely different because Ryan Franklin did not have good stuff. You know, he he challenged hitters on the edge of the zone. Well, he and... he, he did have some good stuff. He injected it into his body, <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then he got in trouble for that, and he couldn't do it anymore. And you know, he he had a pretty quick Im, implosion, and Larusa, you know, did the typical thing when a guy like that loses his stuff and tried to bring him in, like Schilt did with Reyes today, in games when they were getting blown out, and he was just gasoline on the fire, and then he was done. But um, you know, when it came to Reyes, it just all of the walks, you know, and if there's something that is indicative to me of a, of a pitcher's inability to have sustained success. It is issuing a lot of walks. We had the frequent conversations about John Gant, quote unquote, Houdini. Um, and then we had discussions about Alex Reyes. And back before the trade deadline, we talked about how the Cardinals needed to trade him because that was when his value would be highest and it's going to probably go down from here. And little did we know that it would completely crater 
into subterranean levels. Um, even I didn't think regression would be this brutal, but it's been bad. And, um, you know, we have talked about Schultz staying with guys to show that he trusts them. You have to wonder at the end of the season uh, if Schultz sticking with Reyes at closer uh, will wind up costing them potentially a playoff spot because yeah. I think he did stick with him too long in that role. Yeah. And, you know, and in terms of now, when you say that he's, he's cratered and you, uh, the other day you posted kind of his, you know, peripheral numbers and Alex Reyes is, is basically a league average reliever right now. Yep. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to people to listen and think we're saying that, you know, he's, he's a terrible relief pitcher. He's not, he's about a league average relief pitcher. But the point is you don't, uh, teams don't say, Hey, I have this guy who's a league average relief pitcher. I have to give this guy the ball in the ninth inning every game that is on the line. And if he's, if he's looking shaky, I'm going to stick with him because he's my ninth inning guy. They just, they just don't do that. But of course we did here. And, and so much of it comes back to just these, again, these labels and it's, it happens everywhere, but Schilt is showing just like Matheny to be just so beholden to roles and labels. And, and, uh, and frankly, no label is sillier than the label of closer, right? I mean, when we talk yeah. about like your starting lineup, like you do literally have to pencil somebody in as your second baseman, you know, like to start the game. And so the person who does that a lot, the, okay, they're, they're kind of your starting second baseman. Like that just, that sort of happens. But, you know, your bullpen, you're just, you're, you're, you're free to mix and match with your, you know, and your starters too. Like they, they start every five days, right? You know, your bullpen, you're really flexible to kind of do what you want with it. And there, and you know, that hasn't, hasn't been done. Now he said he would play matchups. Okay. And that's always a like, well, what are you, like, what are you even talking about when you say you're, you're going to play matchups? Uh, to me, in terms of, well, how would I use a bullpen uh, like this? And I mean, this isn't like, um, I'm not inventing this idea. It's been around for a long time. It's all about leverage and it's all about using your best relievers at the highest leverage moments. I could give a shit who pitches the ninth inning. Now, a lot of times the ninth inning is a, is a moment of high leverage. So very often you are going to have a pretty good pitcher pitching there. But when I look at a team like the Cardinals, Obviously, Giovanni Gallegos is your best reliever. He has been all year. He's really been for the last few years. Okay, so once you're getting into that like seventh, eighth, ninth inning, you're you're seeing the shape of the game. Okay, so you if if he's available that day, be ready to deploy him at the highest leverage moment. So let's say you're coming into the eighth inning. You've got the two, three, four hitters coming up. That's where you, that's where you plug him in, right? On the other hand, if you're at the seven, eight, nine in the eighth inning, well, then maybe you don't. Then maybe it's TJ McFarland time, or it's you know whoever whoever else, and you and then you're going to save Gallegos for the ninth. But uh, you know, just you know, ad- to me, that's what kind of uh, addressing and responding to the situation is. And I feel like we hear from Schilt and and often from other managers that they're going to do that, but then that's not what they do at all. They have they have a ninth inning guy, and then pretty soon they have an eighth inning and a ninth inning guy, and then pretty soon they have a seventh and an eighth and a ninth inning guy. You know, and if you have a pretty good bullpen, you might even have a sixth inning guy. But at some point, all the other guys are just sort of mop up guy, interchangeable yeah. mop up guys. So, yeah. um, anyway, it's um, 
so it, it's just it's funny to me. I mean, I, I think I I I tweeted when Schilt made that comment. I said if he goes more than a week without naming a closer, I'll eat a pack of 1989 Donruss. And uh, I'm at no risk of eating those 89 Donruss because, as I said, we're, we're two games in. And he's, <laughs> three. He's only used he, – well, three games, but only twice where they weren't getting blown out. Uh, and and he went to Gallegos both times. It, so, it, you know, it, 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 uh, it is what it is. Um, any, uh, any other thoughts on, uh, on uh, Schilt in the bullpen before we move uh, on? Well, you know and uh, – readers of Viva Alberto's know that reliever usage and burn rate is something that I have long been interested in. Um, and I used to do it with Matheny because, uh, you know, Matheny used to grind relievers arms into dust. Um, you know, there's a, there's a laundry list of relievers who, uh, had their career earnings negatively impacted by Mike Matheny destroying their arms. Um, I'm picturing the Hunger Games right now, and like <laughs> Kevin Segrist's face just flashed in the sky, and there was a cannon shot, and now Seth Manus's face is flashing in the sky. Bowman, uh, yeah. uh, Mujica, Mitchell Boggs, uh, we can we can uh, Trevor Rosenthal, Scott Boris actually had a meeting with the Cardinals to get Mike Matheny to use Scott or to use uh, Rosenthal, Trevor Rosenthal less often. Uh, folks will recall. Um, and so that that was always an interesting exercise to me was to look at uh, the reliever usage rate and then compare it to the year prior. And this year that would be very tricky to do because starters are not the only pitchers coming off the pandemic shortened season. So are relievers. And depending on who you ask, uh, it's fairly common for pitchers to say that that relieving is more difficult on the body than starting because you don't have a set routine and you'll get loose and not pitch and you'll pitch three days in a row sometimes and then you'll go five days without pitching and it's just it's hard to get into a routine and it's harder on the body and so looking looking at the reliever usage and and the number of innings that Schilt has had to lean on his best relievers um you know, I, I think you're going to see a uh, a pretty high usage rate overall for Gallegos and for Cabrera and for Reyes as well. Um, but I've also found it interesting to see how people have kind of were spinning that when they, they all kind of had a few bad outings in a row. And this is evidence that they are being run into the ground because they aren't pitching as effectively. And in Gallego's case, uh, he actually finished the month of August with a FIP, a fielding independent pitching, which measures strikeouts, walks, home runs, and innings pitch, which are the, the things that a, a pitcher, at least when it comes to strikeouts, walks, and home runs, the pitcher has the most control over. And he finished with a FIP below three in the month of August. And so I, I think that maybe some folks were a little bit worried that going to Gallegos, like he was burnt out. And who knows, he may wind up being burnt out. But he had a rough patch in July, and he has really righted the ship uh, over the last month by fielding independent pitching. And so 
I, I think that's an important context. Uh, and I think Cabrera has as well. And that, that unfortunate outing in Pittsburgh, I think very clearly they had a, a read on him yeah. and they knew what was coming. And it's just, when you're dealing with a reliever and that happens and they give up six runs in a month, well, guess what happens to their ERA? It's just completely blown up. Right. And so I, I, I am, I am a little less worried about Gallegos and Cabrera than I think the last cycle of media criticism uh, would maybe lead us to believe we should be worried. And I just wanted to touch on that while we were addressing the way the bullpen uh, is being reshuffled and how Schultz going to use people. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, especially as we start kind of talking about Schilt, I think often in comparison to Matheny, like we all often need to throw this asterisk on there that like it's it's not nearly as bad as Matheny. I mean, Matheny would go to those same guys in games that were, you know, way, way ahead or way behind. I mean, he just he went to those guys all the time. And, you know, Schilt is pretty has been pretty judicious, I think, to a degree about how he's you know, use these guys given again, as we talked about on our last show, what he could do when he had just essentially no, uh, you know, even replacement level options outside of these, you know, three guys for so much of the season. Um, so, uh, moving on, um, we wanted to touch on, uh, an article from the athletic that, uh, uh, got a lot of uh, kind of uh, hype and um, hopefully a number of you read um, had to do with uh, Colton Wong. Um, the uh, came out just uh, two days ago. The title of the article was Brewers Colton Wong finds his confidence, regains his power after scrapping Cardinals leadoff advice. Uh, it was written by Will Salmon. Um, and I'm going to read just w- um, one of the first quotes from the article that I think this really kind of is, you know, the central point of it. It's from Colton Wong. He says, it was almost like, okay, I tried to do everything that the Cardinals told me to do, how they wanted me to play this game, and still it wasn't good enough. So heading into free agency and signing with a new team, I was like, that's it. I'm going to do what I want to do, play the game how I want to play, and how I know that I can be successful if everything goes right. And, of course, Wong's uh, offensive numbers are just you know, best of his career um, by pretty wide margins this season. So, um, Ben, I know you've read that entire article. What were your takeaways? Uh, Well, I found it, the thing that stuck out most to me um, is the Cardinals instructing Wong to take pitches and work the count. And he was taking like... uh, uh, 4.3 pitches per plate appearance last year for the Cardinals, and that's down below four now. Um, and Craig Council saying, you know, you have to attack early in the count if you get a pitch to hit, be- basically because breaking stuff is so nasty in this league now, and they have such good scouting reports on players. You can't go about it the way they did, like, you know, in the eighties or even the nineties where they didn't have as much data um, and the pitchers weren't as good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found that pretty interesting um, because uh, Tommy Edmond doesn't do that at all. Right. Like right. <laughs> I, you know, I don't really, when I watch Tommy Edmond 
take at bats. I don't really see someone who's working the count. And even on top of that, the Cardinals, I, I felt early in the year, were being very aggressive early in the count. And mm-hmm. and as a result, they weren't working walks and they, they had a low team on base percentage. And so I found that really uh, interesting because if you if you compare and I'm not like challenging what Colton Wong is saying here what what I'm saying is when I look at the 2021 Cardinals it feels as if the Cardinals maybe had a similar takeaway to Wong's 2020 right. as Colton Wong and so I found that very interesting um, and uh, I, it 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 just struck me like just yeah. looking at this, that if we took, take what he's saying and look at the current team, it, it doesn't really seem that they're continuing down the path. They had him go down last year. Right. But I, you know, I, I get the sense in this article that Wong's not necessarily talking about one, one bit of advice or one philosophy. He's kind of talking about, the whole of his experience with the Cardinals. And so, yes, the last couple of years he was here, he was in the, in the Jeff Albert system here and the Mike Schilt system. But for more of his career, he was in the Mike Matheny and John Mabry system. Yes. And I certainly watching how Colton Wong was just criminally mishandled by uh, Mike Matheny can, you know, can absolutely see this. And if, you know, if you remember back, you know, I mean, Wong, the first what, three plus years of his career, he would get benched during the season. Um, I think we all remember the horrific game at Wrigley when <sighs> Mike Matheny started Colton Wong in left field where yep. he had never played in his life. Like the, like w- probably the best defensive second baseman in the entire league and he's he puts him out in left field for no reason, and and you know offensively too definitely it, you know there were times where you know Wong was trying to hit home runs there was there were times where um, you know they were kind of maybe trying to push him into more of a leadoff role whatever that meant and and maybe tr- trying to encourage him to take pitches to you know uh, be more of a slap hit or whatever um, you know and and so uh, who knows I mean it feels like. Obviously, he didn't connect very well with the coaching staff in St. Louis, and there was conflicting um, philosophies there, you know, and he didn't get the best results. And he's gone somewhere else now, and he's feeling really good about his game, and he's getting better results. And so to me, that's that's the thing that I take away a little bit more from this than anything else. And frankly, I take it away because it also confirms what <laughs> what I believe about the Cardinals just kind of internal coaching and player development in general. I just I, I know I've, I've said it many times on here, you know, who comes to the Cardinals and gets better? Right. We, you know, who who's a, a you know major league player that comes into the Cardinals system and then you see them really blossom, really develop, really take another step. We don't see it that often. I think we see fairly often guys who have been in the Cardinals system go somewhere else and and have some success. Um, and granted, some of these the Randy Rosarinas and things like this, some of it, sometimes it's a little bit of a, you know, uh, a little bit of a bubble um, for sure. And, and we're very sensitive to that, of course, because anytime we feel like we lost out on that production. But, you know, I mean, this is just kind of another piece of of, um, of evidence there to me that, the, you know, this is something that's that's going on and that whoever is 
whatever's going on in the machinations of the Cardinals, you know, minor league and major league coaching systems, it's just not, it's not connecting with players and they're not getting the best results. Um, and I, I think if you look at the overall arc, I agree 100% of the assessment of Colton Wong's career. And I would take it a step further. I feel like he hit his stride after they fired Matheny. Um, oh, I think yeah. two, 2019, uh, under Schilt, uh, who Wong had a very good relationship with. Uh, he was very uh, positive in his assessment of Schilt when they hired him uh, in his comments to the media. Um, but I also remember when the Cardinals demoted Wong yeah. uh, to get him get his swing right, <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly, and, and to be able to play every day. Um, and I even remember some of the... the uh, guys who who played high school baseball on Twitter coming after me after I wrote a post uh, quite critical <laughs> of the manager uh, and the front office uh, back, I guess, seven years ago now, um, if I remember correctly. Um, and they did. They, they did not seem to know uh, how to let Colton Wong be Colton Wong. And mm-hmm. if you see him on the field, uh, for the Milwaukee Brewers, and it really, he really stood out in that series at Bush. Um, you know the the energy and the excitement, uh, and it really reminded me of seeing him play for the Quad Cities uh, about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, the the potential and the excitement there, and you know people who refer to him as, you know, like a spark plug or what have you for the offense. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can definitely see that um, uh, with the Brewers now that he going to Milwaukee has allowed him to become the, the best player that you thought he could be when you watched him in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why is it that that does not seem to happen uh, for Cardinals position players who get called up uh, over the last several years, because Colton Wong is the most successful uh, yeah. homegrown position player talent uh, in terms of overall production and realization, and even exceeding uh, perhaps uh, expectations. He, yeah. he is, you know, he was someone that the scouts in the front office identified and drafted in the first round. He, he rose through the system and was an everyday big ligger. And, you know, they're, they just, they haven't had a lot of success, uh, you know, in that regard um, with any of these other players. I mean, even Dylan Carlson, you would be hard pressed to describe his 2021 season as anything other than slightly disappointing. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Ben, uh, there's another article, another athletic article that came out just within the last couple of days that I think speaks to this as well. This was a Ken Rosenthal article, San Francisco's secret giants say young unconventional coaches fuel their surprising success. And this is the second kind of lengthy athletic piece on the giants coaching staff. We talked about uh, the, an earlier one within the last couple of months, but this Ken Rosenthal piece just goes into, you know, uh, ex- explores again, the, the idea that, 
the the Giants um, have a huge coaching staff, a huge major league coaching staff. Um, but Ken Rosenthal gets into more of the kind of unconventional backgrounds that they have. So um, nine of Gabe Kapler's 12 initial hires had never played in the major leagues. OK, and that's, of course, one of the reasons that uh, Alyssa Nakin, who's uh, the first full time female coach in major league history, you know, is a coach there. So um, they they not only hired a large coaching staff, they brought in people from very diverse backgrounds um, and, and just and a lot of voices. And so what have they done with that? Well, it's given the guys on their major league team a number of kind of options for who they can connect with and a number of different ways to look at what they're doing. And, and as a result, in a you know uncanny way, uh, major league players for the Giants, guys who have been in the league for years, are improving, which is something that we don't typically we don't typically see. You know, and they're kind of finding a way to do that. And to me, these two things go together really well because what's Colton Wong saying? He's saying basically nobody saw me for who I was. Nobody would kind of help me, let me kind of do the things I wanted to do. They tried to fit me in this other specific box. And when you look at what this Giants coaching staff is doing, it seems like it's really about, uh, you know, looking at each player, understanding kind of who that player is, but then helping to guide them to be, you know, the, the best version of that player that they can be. And I think this is something that you see all over successful uh, organizations. And, you know, you see, uh, t- you know, teams like the Astros, right, that have been doing this for years and they'll they'll go and they'll pluck these guys and they'll say, like, this guy's not having a lot of success because he's throwing this garbage pitch mix, but he's got this one pitch with this elite spin on it. And so, hey, come here and here's what we think you should do. You should you should your game should be this now. And, and, you know, guys execute that and they're really successful. And it's not just jobbers they're doing that with. They pick up Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander and make those guys, you know, even better. And to me, that's the kind of thing that I just see 100 completely absent from the Cardinals organization. Uh, I, I, you know, and I, again, we don't know what they're doing. I don't know what the coaches are doing. I don't know what the philosophies are there. But when I look at the output on the field, I don't see any evidence that that's happening. And then you see articles like this Colton Wong article and it's like, you know, anecdotal, but first person accounts basically saying, yeah, that's not, that's not happening. So. Oh, I, I totally agree. And uh, the giants article by Ken Rosenthal, if you do subscribe to the athletic, uh, you should 100% read that because it is uh, very much worth your time. And And I, I think if we recommend one more athletic article here, we might actually be able to, get ourselves put into the athletic podcast feed as well. So I think we're, <laughs> I think we're, we're getting close to being an official athletic uh, podcast here. Uh, no, but it, it, it is very good. Um, and uh, a, a very good piece. And uh, it's v- it, very interesting to read and look at it um, because through the prism of, like what the Cardinals do and don't do. Um, And also, you know, what the article made me think of was uh, how college football teams are bringing in like consultants and analysts who are basically more coaches, right? But they call them other things and have them do different things uh, to get around NCAA rules. And, you know, like Alabama will have like, five former head coaches and like NFL offensive coordinators as analysts. Mm -hmm. And they're just going through 
with just a different perspective and and making their overall approach more well-rounded and Mm -hmm. uh when you break that down on an individual basis in baseball it makes a lot of sense that being able to work with different people who bring a different perspective when you're trying to get the most out of these guys and and when you have you know like 12 13 you know, maybe up to 20, let's say position players. Right. And mm-hmm. you're trying to help them adjust to major league hitting. Well, having more voices in the room, uh, can, and, and with all the data and all the other information and, and resources that they now have available for them, having more people helping the batters, uh, or the pitchers, uh, develop approaches to help them be successful and to adjust and those types of things. To me, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is you, you, again, the backgrounds of these guys that are, that are coming in here, um, you know, don't, don't just hire X players. Don't hire X players, (laughs) you know, Um, you know, uh, the Giants and and the Dodgers and many of these organizations, you know, the the Reds with Kyle Bodie, like teams, teams are going out and they're going to these, you know, innovative, you know, hitting labs and pitching labs. And they're they're bringing in the guys who work there. And a lot of these guys, most of them, like they probably pitched in college or maybe they played in the minors or stuff like that. Some of them didn't though. Some of them, you know, but, but they have a skill set and they have a philosophy and they have a point of view. So they're, they're bringing something into the organization. You know, there's been a lot of talk that apparently Ryan Ludwig has been hanging out with the major yep. league team. And there's all this talk that like, well, maybe they're going to bring Ryan Ludwig in to be the hitting coach. And look, I love Ryan Lud- Ludwig as a player and I don't know anything about him. Maybe Ryan Ludwig is a really intelligent, innovative guy. I don't know. But just because Ryan Ludwig was a major league hitter who was successful for a while, that doesn't impress me. OK, I would much rather them hire some, you know, 27 year old who runs a hitting lab out of his garage in Las Vegas. But like, you know, five guys who had just about washed out of the league went there last summer. And, you know, now this year they're, you know, careers have taken off like those are the you know those are the guys that are kind of the the hot hires that you see around the league and i just don't see any of that um in st louis and it's almost like they don't even understand the evolution has happened in that you know in that way so um anyway um that that's i think that is what it is i don't i don't know that i have a whole lot else to say uh on that um Ben, should we uh, shall we wrap things up? What are you uh, What are you looking for? Well, it's uh, I'm I'm scoreboard watching more and more. Um, so I'm. <laughs> uh, I was going to say I was going to be scoreboard watching. We, maybe we should start going over. We, these we need to yeah. start doing yeah. that um, <laughs> because I am. I I have started following. Now I have to scroll through and find the Phillies, Padres, and Reds. Yep. Um, but the uh, the thing that I am going to be uh, looking for is uh, I'm going to be looking at Harrison Bader and Dylan Carlson. Uh, and the reason being those two guys need to hit, I think, for this team to survive, not just survive their September schedule, but thrive and make a run a legit run for the second wild card spot. Uh, 
they they need to to do more at the plate uh, to help this team succeed uh, if they're going to do that. Because if those two guys are hitting the depth that that adds to that lineup, it just makes the team uh, a much more formidable team. And uh, I'm going to be watching them to see how they're putting together plate appearances. Uh, Bader had the home run earlier today, which was good to see. Uh, I'm going to be watching them and hopefully they can get hot at the right time and, and help propel the team to the postseason. Well, so I mentioned, I'm also going to be scoreboard watching and as you are, but then you also listed a very kind of intelligent thing that you're going to be watching for. (laughs) I'm, I'm just going to be a big dumb idiot just watching the score. I'm going to watch what's the score of the Cardinals game. What's the score of these other games, but I'm going to tell you the reason why is and I'm feeling kind of relaxed and sort of just sort of at peace with the universe. We're at the point of the season where I just kind of feel like it is what it is, right? We're past, we're past the trade deadline. We're past everything. Like, hey, this is who the Cardinals are. This is who these other teams are. As we said, they're in a race for the second wild card with a bunch of other teams who also aren't very good. So I'm just going to watch it play out, you know, and and I'm a Cardinals fan, so I hope it plays out for them. I can think of a million reasons why it wouldn't, but um, every time I watch one of these other teams, I can also see a million reasons why it, <laughs> why it would. So um, I'm uh, I'm going to be a little chill and just kind of watch and see, uh, you know, see what happens on the scoreboard. Uh, two and a half games out is a a reasonable place that you know they could actually get in there and um, oh. Every now and then when I allow myself to dream, I, I think about a, a Adam Wainwright, Max Scherzer, uh, one game, one game playoff. And, and I got to tell you, in a situation like that with a like, you know, absolutely elite Dodgers team potentially, you know, being eliminated by, uh, you know, a 40 year old uh, working on guile, Adam Wainwright and a light hitting Cardinals lineup that manages to you know squeeze two runs across. God, that sounds beautiful. Wouldn't that just be a beautiful game to watch? <laughs> it, it would. Uh, it, it would be really lovely. And when I think back to the 2009 NLDS, uh, when the Cardinals rolled in with their their double Cy Young candidates, and they they both didn't really pitch that well. Um, not that not that Wainwright was bad, but uh, just not good enough to beat the Dodgers in that series. And uh, it would be really sweet if now 40-year-old Adam Wainwright, who is not at the, you know, at the peak of his physical ability like 2009 Adam Wainwright was, uh, if he were able to start that game and and lead the Redbirds past the Dodgers, it would be very uh, sweet indeed. It would. It would. This rotation is starting to give me uh, remembrances of 2006 as well. <laughs> it does. You know, <laughs> uh, big Jeff Weaver energy uh, coming oh. off of <laughs> the. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeff the, Weaver and Jeff Supon and just, yeah, just, you know, like, uh, you know, guys out there, they're, hey, well, they're throwing it up there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not quite done. Um, yeah. So anyway, anyway, that's that's what I'm going to be looking for. Um, So we've got folks are sitting there with an off day. Ben, do you have a recommendation for them? Um, I I do. Uh, It is now September 
and uh, every year when the calendar turns from August to September, I have a little bit of anxiety hit for the end of baseball season. But it's not just the end of baseball games that is coming. It's kind of, for me, the end of baseball movie season as well. And so your ability to watch a baseball movie, at least for me, um, it, it, the door is closing on that. And so, uh, we had, uh, mentioned the game and, uh, also even the quad cities, uh, in this podcast, uh, or the team, uh, in quad cities and, and that, that ballpark, uh, was where they shot a movie called Sugar that's about a, a minor league prospect. Uh, it's a really a really good movie, and I encourage folks uh, to check it out. Uh, really enjoyable. And, you know, if you still have a video rental store uh, in your town, uh, I don't think Des Moines does anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you could maybe rent it there. Uh if you are looking for it uh, on streaming, um, I'm not sure where it is. I think it's on Amazon Prime uh, to rent, and uh, it's also available on Stars if you have that on the Hulu subscription. Yeah, I was just checking, uh, but no, I would, I would so recommend that film as well. It's just a really, uh, a really great baseball film. I mean, it's it's definitely in my top five. I would say baseball films of all time up there with just some real, real heavy hitters. Um, but yeah, just such a great, uh, just really puts you in that character's perspective. And um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant movie. So uh, bravo, that is a great recommendation. Um, so my recommendation, um, it, it's I, it's a book that I, I actually I talked about I think on our last episode, and I kind of alluded around it today as well. So I just wanted to officially recommend it, and that's uh, the MVP Machine by Ben Lindbergh. And this book came out in uh, 2019. It actually came out more recently than I kind of thought. And um, you know, again, it's it, Moneyball. What Moneyball was to just kind of you know, looking for, you know, fat guys who got on base, right? Um, the MVP machine is basically about the the sort of uh, revolution in the, you know, 20, you know, maybe say like 2015 or so on um, of uh, a lot of really the data-driven um, uh, evaluation of players and, and also just the, the way that players could use um, you know, the kind of tools that that uh, places like Driveline really kind of, you know, championed early on, you know, measuring, um, you know, things like their, you know, pitchers uh, spin rates and and um, elements of their swings and things like that. And and could use that to help players really dial themselves in and kind of become the best versions of themselves. And so, you know, it follows a number of specific players who have done this. It follows some of the organizations that have really been heavily into this. So the Astros are profiled pretty prominently in there. The one trigger warning I would give is there's there's a 
fair amount of Trevor Bauer in the book because um, unfortunately, of course, Trevor Bauer was one of the kind of poster children for this. He was a real early adopter of this, Um, you know, achieved a lot of success from it but he's a horrible horrible monster so um just be aware if you do read the book he he is a character who will float through there but um to me in the way that i think you almost had to read moneyball to understand how the game of baseball you know transformed in the 2000s i think you have to read the mvp machine to kind of understand what's happening now and and again getting back to the the wong article and that that san francisco giants article i i worry that the cardinals front office has not read the mvp machine um ben do you think that's the case should i should i buy some copies and ship them to uh clark street there uh well i don't I don't think it would do any harm. Um, uh, but I have a confession to make. I have never read Moneyball. Oh, okay. Um, here I am, a, a an on-base guy uh, yeah. who uh, blogged about baseball, and I have uh, never read, read FireJoeMorgan.com, never read Moneyball. Got really annoyed with Joe Morgan's comments like about on base percentage, uh, but right. never never read Moneyball. Well, and Michael Lewis is such a great writer too. I would recommend. I, you know, to be fair, I read it I read it a lot later too because I think like you, I more absorbed um, you know, baseball prospectus and just kind of some of those like outlets that were um more sort of sabermetrically minded and that's kind of where I sort of learned the philosophy. Because, I mean, it, it was probably a good eight years after it came out that I actually went back and, and, and read the, you know, read the text itself. So, um, you know, but it's good. But have you seen the movie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've seen the movie. <laughs> um, I, I cannot uh, avoid a Brad Pitt release. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, uh, uh, it, it, it was just it got really good reviews and it was just a really good movie um do, yeah. do you think there will be an mvp machine movie uh no because you would have to have trevor bauer in it as a character and so i think that's a i think that's a non-starter at this point um <laughs> so uh i don't know although it's it was a, such an odd choice to make a movie out of Moneyball too um you know i think it actually made for a pretty interesting movie but you know it's not a not a real Hollywood narrative archy script. So that's why you have to draft on something about like a 22 game winning streak as if that's something more than just a novelty. (laughs) Yes. And you know, you have to write the big three pitchers out of the, out of the movie. Absolutely. Um, They were not there. Nothing to do with anything. Did Um, not factor in, did not factor in, but you know what? There's some good stuff in the book. That's not in the movie. One of the things I like was it gets into you know, Billy Bean's time because he was a uh, he was like a top five draft pick. I think he was a elite like high school guy drafted and and, you know, uh, got a cup of coffee, I think, with a couple different organizations in the majors, but more or less was kind of a washout for the, you know, the pedigree that he had. And um, I remember specifically because he had been in the Mets organization and he was in the Mets organization, I want to say in the minors at the same time as Lenny Dykstra. And he talks about basically watching Lenny Dykstra and kind of coming to understand that he was never going to be successful because basically Lenny Dykstra was this, you know, lunatic who had just, you know, 
run into the wall or do what, you know, like Lenny Dykstra was solely focused on this and had like no, at no point did he uh, question himself or like look inward or anything. And, and Billy Bean just wasn't wired that way. And, And he feels like that's kind of that, that element of his just personality that even though he had really strong physical tools, just didn't allow him to become a, you know, elite ball player. What was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I, it was Zach Greinke. And I think he had a quote that it was something like, uh, the dumbest people I've ever met in my life are major league hitters and it helps them. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, because they're, they just, that's like, this is a game of failure. And if you're going to let that creep into your, you know, your mm-hmm. mindset, you're, you're going to fail enough yeah. that you won't be here anymore. And yeah. so you just have to go just have absolute belief in yourself and just go do it. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and we're really kind of rambling on now, but um, another great piece that came out this week, Rob Raines wrote a really good profile of uh, Nolan Gorman. Um, yes. Then I think you shared with me, but that was one of the things there towards the end. And that was something that Nolan Gorman said that he thinks he's had success with this year is he talked about in years past, like, if he if he had a couple bad plate appearances, he would immediately start kind of changing his approach or yes. thinking through like what am I doing wrong, like trying to fix it. And this year, he's kind of realized like he, he's more successful just keeping sticking to a simple approach and just saying like this is what I need to do and just kind of you know keeping doing that, which I think is kind of a, a version of what you're talking about there. You know, he's basically willing himself to be you know, a dumb guy to like, to not, but just to not let all those voices, you know, get in there and, and mess with uh, everything and to, you know, keep it a little more simple. Yeah. You have to have a belief in yourself, but you have to know what you're good at and what you're not and be able to adjust, uh, in a way that allows you to maximize your strengths, but also to react to the way that they're attacking your weaknesses and it sounds so simple, uh, but as we see every year, uh, it is in fact rather difficult. And yeah. so, uh, and so, it will be interesting to see, um, you know, how Gorman uh, adjusts when he moves from AAA to the majors. You know, if he's able to maintain uh, that outlook um, and that mental approach and enjoy success, I, I think what he has shown is that. Uh, he is skilled at making adjustments. You know, he's yeah. Yeah. he has hit at double A and triple A while learning a new defensive position, which is which is nothing to sneeze at. So absolutely, absolutely, uh, a lot of promise the, there. I think the takeaway here is while you're a baseball player, be like Lenny Dykstra. The moment you stop being a baseball player, stop being like Lenny Dykstra immediately. At that point, <laughs> then you want to be more like Billy Bean. Okay, that that would be a good movie. Nails the Lenny Dykstra story, and oh. uh, you know you can show how being a total idiot worked very well when you were doing steroids and Coke in New York city and playing baseball. And then how that's not a good approach to life after baseball. Didn't he, didn't, didn't he have a defamation suit thrown out because the judge ruled it was impossible to defame him? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That could be the end of the movie. Um, The judge ruling that you can actually not sue anyone for defamation because your reputation is so sullied 
that no, no one see, can damage it. That's the start of the movie. And then we have the needle scratch and the zoom in on, on Lenny. And it's like, yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how I ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man Alrighty. well ben and i are gonna go uh uh kind of work out the beat sheet for the rest of this uh, lenny dykstra movie that we're gonna write but uh we're uh we're glad you guys have all uh joined us i'm glad we're watching a uh, cardinals team that's uh uh still uh in the hunt for this uh, second wild card with a bunch of other bad teams and uh we'll uh, look forward to seeing you guys next time thanks